Chapter 13, Part 1 of The Three Hostages This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 13 I Visit the Fields of Eden There was a change in Medina. I noticed it in the following day, when I lunched with him, and very particularly at the next dinner of the Thursday Club, to which I went as his guest. It was a small change, which nobody else would have remarked, but to me, who was watching him like a lynx, it was clear enough. His ease of manner towards the world was a little less perfect, and when we were alone he was more silent than before. I did not think that he had begun to suspect any danger to his plans, but the day for their consummation was approaching, and even his cold assurance may have been flawed by little quivers of nervousness. As I saw it, once the big liquidation took place, and he realized the assets which were to be the foundation of his main career, it mattered little what became of the hostages. He might let them go. They would wander back to their old world, unable to give any account of their absence, and, if the story got out, there would be articles in the medical journals about these unprecedented cases of lost memory. So far I was certain that they had taken no lasting harm. But if the liquidation failed, God knew what their fate would be. They would never be seen again, for if his possession of them failed to avert disaster to his plans, he would play for safety, and above all, for revenge. Revenge to a mind like his would be a consuming passion. The fact that I had solved one conundrum and laid my hand on one of the hostages put me in a perfect fever of restlessness. Our time was very short and there were still two poor souls hidden in his black underworld. It was the little boy I thought most of, and perhaps my preoccupation with him made me stupid about other things. My thoughts were always on the blind spinner, and there I could not advance one single inch. MacGilvery's watchers had nothing to report. It was no use me paying another visit to Madame Breda and going through the same rigmarole. I could only stick to Medina and pray for luck. I had resolved that if he asked me again to take up my quarters with him in Hill Street, I would accept, though it might be hideously awkward in a score of ways. I longed for Sandy, but no word came from him, and I had his strict injunctions not to try and reach him. The only friend I saw in those early days of May was Archie Roylance, who seemed to have forgotten his Scotch greenshanks and settled down in London for the season. He started playing polo, which was not a safe game for a man with a crocked leg, and he opened his house in Grosvenor Street and roosted in a corner of it. He knew I was busy in a big game, and he was mad to be given a share in it, but I had to be very careful with Archie. He was the best fellow alive, but discretion had never been his strong point. So I refused to tell him anything at present, and I warned Turpin, who was an ancient friend of his, to do the same. The three of us dined together one night, and poor old Turpin was rallied by Archie on his glumness. "'You're a doleful bird, you know,' he told him. "'I heard somewhere you were going to be married, and I expect that's the cause. What do you call it? Ranger yourself? Cheer up, my son. It can't be as bad as it sounds. Look at Dick there.' I switched him on to other subjects, and we got his opinion on the modern stage. Archie had been doing a course of plays, and had very strong views on the drama. 
Something had got to happen, he said, or he fell asleep in the first act, and something very rarely happened, so he was left to slumber peacefully till he was awakened and turned out by the attendants. He liked plays with shooting in them, and a knockabout farce, anything indeed with a noise in it. But he had struck a vein of serious drama, which he had found so terrific. One piece in a special, which showed the difficulties of a lady of fifty who fell in love with her stepson, he seriously reprobated. Rotten, he complained. What did it matter to anyone what the old cat did? But I assure you, everyone round me was gloating over it. A fellow said to me it was a masterpiece of tragic irony. What's irony, Dick? I thought it was the tone your commanding officer adopted when you had made an ass of yourself, and he showed it by complimenting you on your intelligence. Oh, by the way, you remember that girl in green we saw at that dancing place? Well, I saw her at the show, at least I'm pretty sure it was her, in a box with a black-bearded fellow. She didn't seem to be taking much of it in. Wonder who she is and what she's doing there. Russian, do you think? I believe the silly play was translated from the Russian. I want to see that girl dance again. The next week was absolutely blank, except for my own perpetual worrying. Medina kept me close to him, and I had to relinquish any idea of going down to Fosse for an occasional night. I longed badly for the place, and for a sight of Peter John, and Mary's letters didn't comfort me, for they were getting scrappier and scrappier. My hope was that Medina would act on Karama's advice, in order to establish his power over his victims, bring them into the open, and exercise it in the environment to which they had been accustomed. That wouldn't help me with a little boy, but it might give me a line on Miss Victor. I rather hoped that at some ball I would see him insisting on some strange woman dancing with him, or telling her to go home, or something, and then I would have cause to suspect. But no such luck. He never spoke to a woman in my presence who wasn't somebody perfectly well known. I began to think that he had rejected the Indian's advice as too dangerous. Karama, more by token, was back in town, and Medina took me to see him again. The fellow had left Claridge's and was living in a little house in Eaton Place. Away from the glitter of a big hotel, he looked even more sinister and damnable. We went there one evening after dinner and found him squatting on the usual couch in a room lit by one lamp and fairly stinking with odd scents. He seemed to have shed his occidental dress, for he wore flowing robes, and I could see his beastly bare feet under the skirts of them when he moved to rearrange a curtain. They took no more notice of me than if I had been a grandfather's clock, and to my disgust they conducted the whole conversation in some eastern tongue. I gathered nothing from it except a deduction as to Medina's state of mind. There was an unmistakable hint of nervousness in his voice. He seemed to be asking urgent questions, and the Indian was replying calmly and soothingly. By and by, Medina's voice became quieter, and suddenly I realized that the two were speaking of me. Karama's heavy eyes were raised for a second in my direction, and Medina turned ever so little towards me. The Indian asked some question about me, and Medina replied carelessly, with a shrug of his shoulders and a slight laugh. The laugh rasped my temper. He was evidently saying that I was packed up and sealed and safe on the shelf. That visit didn't make me feel happier, and next day, when I had a holiday from Medina's company, I had nothing better to do 
than to wander about London and think dismal thoughts. Yet, as luck would have it, that aimless walk had its consequences. It was a Sunday, and on the edge of Battersea Park, I encountered a forlorn little company of Salvationists conducting a service in the rain. I stopped to listen. I always do. For I am the eternal average man who is bound to halt at every street show, whether it be a motor accident or a punch and judy. I listened to the tail end of an address from a fat man who looked like a reformed publican, and a few words from an earnest lady in spectacles. Then they sang a hymn to a trombone accompaniment, and lo and behold it was my old friend, which I had last whistled in Tom Greensdale's bedroom at Fosse. There is rest for the weary. They sang, On the other side of Jordan, in the green fields of Eden, where the tree of life is blooming, there is rest for you. I joined heartily in the singing, and contributed two half-crowns to the collecting box, for somehow the thing seemed to be a good omen. I had been rather neglecting that item in the puzzle that evening, and that evening and during the night I kept turning it over till my brain was nearly addled. Where the sower casts his seed in, furrows of the fields of Eden. That was the version in the rhyme, and in Tom Greedslade's recollection, the equivalent was a curiosity shop in North London, kept by a Jew with a dyed beard. Surely the two must correspond, though I couldn't just see how. The other two items had panned out so well that it was reasonable to suppose that the third might do the same. I could see no light, and finally, I dropped off to sleep with the blessed fields of Eden twittering about in my head. I awoke with the same obsession, but other phrases had added themselves to it. One was the playing fields of Eton, about which some fellow had said something, and for a moment I wondered if I hadn't got hold of the right trail. Eton was a school for which Peter John's name was down, and therefore it had to do with boys, and might have to do with David Warcliffe. But after breakfast I gave up that line, for it led nowhere. The word was Eden, to rhyme with seed in. There were other fields haunting me, names like Tothill Fields and Bunhill Fields, these were places in London, and that was what I wanted. The directory showed no name like that of Fields of Eden, but was it not possible that there had once in old days been a place called by that odd title? I spent the morning in the club library, which was a very good one, reading up Old London. I read all about Vauxhall Gardens, and Renla, and Cremorne, and a dozen other ancient haunts of pleasure, but I found nothing to my purpose. Then I remembered that Bolivant, Lord Artenswell, had had for one of his hobbies the study of bygone London, so I telephoned to him and invited myself to lunch. He was very pleased to see me, and it somehow comforted me to find myself again in the house of Queen Anne's Gate, where I had spent some of the most critical moments of my life. "'You've taken on the work I wrote to you about,' he said. "'I knew you would. How are you getting on?' "'So-so.' It is a big job, and there is very little time. I want to ask you a question. You are an authority on Old London. Tell me, did you ever come across in your researches the name of the Fields of Eden? He shook his head. Not that I remember. What part of London? I fancy it would be somewhere north of Oxford Street. He considered. No. What is your idea? A name of some private gardens or place of amusement? Yes just like Cremorne or Vauxhall. 
I don't think so, but we'll look it up. I've a good collection of old maps and plans and some antique directories. So after luncheon, we repaired to the library and set to work. The maps showed nothing, nor did the books, at first. We were searching too far back, in the 17th and early 18th centuries, when you went fox hunting in what is now Regent's Park and Tyburn Gallows stood near the Marble Arch. Then, by sheer luck, I tried to cast nearer our own time and found a ribald work belonging to about the date of the American War, which purported to be a countryman's guide to the amusements of town. There was all sorts of information about cider cellars and groves of harmony, which must have been pretty low pubs and places in the suburbs for cockfighting and dogfighting. I turned up the index, and there to my joy I saw the word Eden. I read the passage aloud, and I believe my hands were shaking. The place was, as I hoped, north of Oxford Street, in what we now call Marlebin. The fields of Eden, said the book, were opened by Mr. Askew as a summer resort for the gentlemen and sportsmen of the capital. There of a fine afternoon may be seen Lord A. and the Duke of B. roving among the shady, if miniature, groves, not unaccompanied by the fair nymphs of the garden, while from some adjacent arbors comes the cheerful tinkle of glasses and the merry clatter of dice, and the harmonious strains of Signora F.'s Italian choir. There was a good deal more of it, but I stopped reading. There was a plan of London in the book, and from it I was able to plot out the boundaries of that doubtful paradise. Then I got a modern map, and fixed the location on it. The place had been quite small, only a few acres, and today it was covered by the block defined by Wellesley Street, Apwith Lane, Little Fartle Street, and the mews behind Royston Square. I wrote this down in my notebook, and took my leave. You look pleased, Dick. Have you found what you want? Curious that I never heard the name, but it seems to have belonged to the dullest part of London at the dullest period of its history. Lord Artenswell, I could see, was a little nettled, for your antiquary hates to be caught out in his own subject. I spent the rest of the afternoon making a very thorough examination of a not very interesting neighborhood. What I wanted was a curiosity shop, and at first I thought I was going to fail. Epwith Lane was a kind of slum, with no shops but a disreputable foreign chemist's and a small dirty confectioner's, round the corner of which dirty little children played. The inhabitants seemed to be chiefly foreigners. The mews at the back of Royston Square were, of course, useless. It was long since any dweller in that square had kept a carriage, and they seemed to be occupied chiefly with the motor vans of a steam laundry and the lorries of a coal merchant. Wellesley Street, at least a part of it in my area, was entirely occupied with the showrooms of various American automobile companies. Little Fardell Street was a curious place. It had one odd building, which may have been there when the fields of Eden flourished, which now seemed to be a furniture repository of a sort, with most of the windows shuttered, the other houses were perhaps forty years old, most of them in the offices of small wholesale businesses, such as you would find in the back streets in the city. There was one big French baker's shop at the corner, a picture framer's, a watchmaker's, and a small and obviously decaying optician's. I walked down the plain twice, and my heart sank, for I could see nothing in the least resembling an antique shop. I patrolled the street once more and then I observed that the old dwelling, 
which looked like a furniture depository, was also some kind of shop. Through a dirty lower window, I caught a glimpse of what seemed to be Persian rugs and the bland face of a soapstone idol. The door had the air of never having been used, but I tried it and it opened, tinkling a bell far in the back premises. I found myself in a small dusty place, littered up like a lumber room with boxes and carpets and rugs and bric-a-brac. Most of the things were clearly antiques, though to my inexpert eye, they didn't look worth much. The Turkmen rugs, especially, were the kind of thing you can buy anywhere in the Levant by the dozen. A disheveled Jewess confronted me, wearing sham diamond earrings. I'm interested in antiques, I said pleasantly, taking off my hat to her. May I look round? We do not sell to private customers, she said, only to the trade. I'm sorry to hear that, but may I look round? If I fancied something, I dare I say I could get some dealer I know to offer for it. She made no answer, but fingered her earrings with her plump, grubby hands. I turned over some of the rugs and carpets, and my first impression was confirmed. They were mostly trash, and a lacquer cabinet I uncovered was a shameless fake. I like that, I said, pointing to a piece of Persian embroidery. Can't you put a price on it for me? We only sell to the trade, she repeated, as if it were a litany. Her beady eyes, which never left my face, were entirely without expression. I expect you have a lot of things upstairs, I said. Do you think I might have a look at them? I'm only in London for the day, and I might see something I badly wanted. I quite understand that you are wholesale people, but I can arrange any purchase through a dealer. You see, I'm furnishing a country house. For the first time, her face showed a certain life. She shook her head vigorously. We have no more stock at present. We do not keep a large stock. Things come in and go out every day. We only sell to the trade. Well, I'm sorry to have taken up your time. Good afternoon. As I left the shop, I felt that I had made an important discovery. The business was bogus. There is very little that any dealer would touch, and the profits from all the trade done would not keep the proprietor in Virginian cigarettes. I paid another visit to the neighborhood after dinner. The only sign of life was in the slums of Apwith Lane, where frowsy women were chattering on the curb. Wellesley Street was shuttered and silent from end to end. So was Little Fardo Street. Not a soul was about in it. Not a ray of light was seen at any window. In the midst of the din of London, it made a little enclave, like a graveyard. I stopped at the curiosity shop and saw that the windows were heavily shuttered and that the flimsy old door was secured by a strong outer frame of iron which fitted into a groove at the edge of the pavement and carried a stout lock. The shutters on the ground floor windows were substantial things, preposterously substantial for so worthless a show. As I looked at them, I had a strong feeling that the house beside the palisade was not as dead as it looked, that somewhere inside it there was life, and that in the night things happened there which it concerned me tremendously to know. Next morning, I went to see McGilvery. Can you lend me a first-class burglar? I asked. Only for one night. Some fellow who won't ask any questions and will hold his tongue. I've given up being surprised when you're about, he said. No, we don't keep tame burglars here, but I can find you a man who knows rather more about the art than any professional. Why? Simply because I want to get inside a certain house tonight, and I see no chance of doing it except by breaking my way in. 
I suppose you could so arrange it that a neighboring policeman would not interfere. In fact, I want them to help to keep the coast clear. I went into details with him and showed him the lie of the land. He suggested trying the back of the house, but I had reconnoitred that side and seen that it was impossible, for the building seemed to join on with the houses in the street behind. In fact, there was no back door. The whole architecture was extremely odd, and I had a notion that the entrance in Little Fardell Street might itself be a back door. I told McGilvery that I wanted an expert who could let me in by one of the ground floor windows and replace everything so that there should be no trace next morning. He rang a bell and asked for Mr. Abel to be sent for. Mr. Abel was summoned and presently appeared, a small wizened man, like a country tradesman. McGilvery explained what was required of him, and Mr. Abel nodded. It was a job which offered no difficulties, he said, to an experienced man. He would suggest that he investigated the place immediately after closing time and began work about ten o'clock. If I arrived at ten-thirty, he promised to have a mean of entrance prepared. He inquired as to who were the constables at the nearest points and asked that certain special ones should be put on duty, with whom he would arrange matters. I never saw anyone approach what seemed to me to be a delicate job with such business-like assurance. Do you want anyone to accompany you inside? McGilvery asked. I said no. I thought I had better explore the place alone, but I wanted somebody within call in case there was trouble. And of course, if I didn't come back, say, within two hours, he had better come and look for me. We may have to arrest you as a housebreaker, he said. How are you going to explain your presence if there's nothing wrong indoors and you disturb the sleep of a respectable caretaker? I must take my chance, I said. I didn't feel nervous about that point. The place would either be empty or occupied by those who would not invite the aid of the police. End of chapter 13 Part 1